Hello and welcome to, I think this is episode three or four of uh, series two of Black Women's Hour. Um, you've got me, just me today, um, and Elaine's actually just had a little operation, so she's recovering and Abba is just hectic, life is hectic. So you've got me, the trusty sidekick, and we've got Chantelle Lunt. We're really lucky to have her. She's a BLM activist an ex-police officer and just all-round writer, educator and fantastic black woman. Hi Chantal, how are you doing? Hey, hi Aisha, I'm good, thank you. How's your week been? Um, it's been busy, it's been a busy week. Um, yeah, it's we're on Saturday already, how did that happen? <laughs> I know, I know, we're on Saturday and it sort of feels almost like and there's just, there's only Sunday and then it starts all over yeah, again. Um, yeah. I know that I know that feeling. I was actually saying to you before we started that um I went in the sea yesterday. Our regular viewers will know that is a thing that I do and have had my um black card threatened to be revoked, but I still got it out there slowly there. Um and uh, try and do it all year, but yesterday was the first time I've been in for a few months and it was cold. I don't know, I think it's about I wanna say I did check on Magic Sea and I think it's about eight degrees. Oh at the moment in the sea um but yeah you never feel worse after going in than you do it always improves my mood have you ever done in cold and i have i'm wondering were you in the wetsuit no no you just went in in like a couple oh yeah oh wow people melted i went in and actually rather ridiculous like a red tankini and like little um turquoise bottoms normally i have like slightly bigger sort of mum swimwear yeah um, but because I had my same bag packed from the summer, I just had these little tie string, tie sides, like, have bikini bottoms in. And I just think there was all these people all wrapped up, taking their dogs for a walk. Um, yeah, looking on. But we'd, And you were jumping in the sea? Oh, wow. No, I, I have swam in the sea, but like in a full wetsuit. And you get that, what's it called? The hypothermia. You get like where you walk, jump into cold water, and then you have to sort of, stay there for a minute so you don't um, drown essentially so I got that I didn't Did know anyone told me about it and I jumped straight in and wanted to start swimming and then I was like I can't breathe <laughs> no see the one thing about being where we are is that you can walk into the sea okay as you walk in obviously even though it's only a few seconds yeah and control your exposure to the shock as it were and definitely there are parts of your body that are more sensitive than others yeah. And to the cold. But there is definitely a moment, I think like you described, where the one thing they say to you is to remember to breathe. Yeah. You get your... Yeah. And then you have to really focus on actually breathing. I find, and I've said this before, it definitely helps me to reconnect. It's like one of the few times where your mind and your body are actually completely... Because you can't think about anything else apart from you're about to freeze to death. <laughs> 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 That's always it. And so where did you swim? Um, in Liverpool, in the Mersey, we've got a water sports centre. Yeah, it is. Um, but I like it, like you say, once you've, you know, once you've stopped feeling cold and like you can't breathe and you've done your little swimming on the spot to get your um, breathing rhythm back, it is quite lovely. Um, it does, it makes you feel quite small when you swim in open water. It reminds you how, just how small we are as people. You know, we sometimes yeah. have the walls around us. It doesn't, the world's Roughly to speak to another black woman about it, but I definitely have exactly that feeling. You can be, because obviously when you're on a coast, there's the coastline with people on it, and then there's just the sea. And so if you turn the other way, you just pretend that there isn't a beach full of people. And if it, if it is like January or February or March, there isn't really anyone else on the beach, apart from a few people walking along. And you do get to just sit there and the sun shining and rippling sort of waves. And it just does feel, you know, quite calming. I mean, maybe it's just because you've not died from the shock. You have to have a sense of relief. But I'll take it. I'll take whatever, whatever I can get. Um, I was going to ask you, actually, that on, you know, now we talked about Mersey, uh, being in Liverpool, you were a founder of the BLM Alliance in Merseyside. You want me to tell us a bit about that? How did that come about? Um, so it came obviously as a response to what happened to George Floyd um, in America. And for me, it was it was kind of a digital response initially. So my son was on the shielding list um, during COVID. 
and we were kind of like he's got severe asthma so and he just recovered from pneumonia so i was like on one i, I wouldn't even let the windsor cleaner come near the house i was like we're locked down we're never leaving like no one's ever leaving this house and so but in the middle of like this lockdown so this horrific murder happen and people were taken to the streets and i was kind of at home like i need to do something do you know what i mean it just i think most black people will recognize this this feeling of like i couldn't sleep i couldn't eat it was all that i was thinking about and i was like i need to do something and so for me it was kind of more of a unique position because i wasn't only looking at this as you know a black woman and the mother of black boys but as someone who'd been in the police force and who understood how racism operated within the police force what that institutional racism move like moves like but also for me and you know i'm sure this might come up in our discussion there was a real focus not only on um derek chauvin who had his knee on george floyd's neck but there were other officers there who weren't white who were stood just with the backs to it and i was very much focused on them because i know how officers who are not white get to that position where they just stop caring about the racism that's in the force and they actually become a part of that institutional racism themselves and i so we just started doing posts about what i knew doing educational posts talking about racism talking about experiences and people within the region and just putting a lot of stuff out there and people were like sharing me posts a lot of um allies found found it quite helpful to debunk arguments and and then i was like okay and then people stopped talking about it like quite quickly i have a lot of white people on my timeline and then they just stopped talking about it and i was like why is this conversation stopped and they were like oh we don't know what to say like we feel like we're saying the wrong thing we just don't have like the resources we don't have all of this information so it created like this online community called Merseyside BLM Alliance where all of that was there and we could have discussions and we could have zoom calls and we could meet people and understand different people's perspectives but a perspective that wasn't just one black perspective treating us as a monolith looking at people from the LGBT community black women black children everyone to understand that everyone experiences racism differently um, and it went on like that and then we once lockdown kind of ended we did more in-person events and it just became quite a big group and quite a big movement and fed into the BLM UK movement and we were up and down the country and it just kind of took off um, and it's one of the you know it's one of the few BLMs that's still quite active now like three years down the line because not all are as active as they were you know in 2020 and then just in terms of the events that you're running, sort of the Zoom events or even the in-person events, how did they go? Because I know one of the things that you said that actually really struck a chord with me was that a lot of sort of white followers or white people on your timeline were saying that they didn't know what to say or they felt like they were saying the wrong things and they did want to engage. So the willingness to engage of a goodwill was there, but they didn't know and they didn't have the resources. When you did hold those events, what kind of resources did you provide them with? Because I think a lot of people actually been really interested to know you know, where or what they can use. Because I, I know I'm often giving people stats on the Tory government and, and numbers because I feel like most people don't know. And I feel like when people say, oh, well, they've done this, actually what they need is numbers. To, so in, in the same way, what people need, allies need, is the facts. And, and, you know, did you, how did you, what sort of format did you give them in? Was it talks? Was it, you know... So we did a lot of panel discussions and talks. The kinds of people we had on were people who we thought would be considered like experts in the field. So we did one about men black mental health, which was with a black psychologist. And then we followed up with some links and resources that people would find helpful, but it was mainly based around conversation. And then here's some additional, you know, resources if you did find that useful. Um, and we'd usually like send that out after we do through Eventbrite and then we'd send stuff out to everyone who attended. Um, we spoke about miscarriages of justice. We've got a really good professor on from the university that I go to who spoke about how many people and how common a miscarriage of justice is in the UK. Racism in sport, which for me was a really big one because I was even, and I, um, we had like Madeleine Okoro, who's an Olympic athlete, or she's retired now, but she was an Olympic athlete. Um, and we were talking about the fact that you see a lot of representation for black athletes at a certain level. So people think there's no racism within sport. And a point that she made that really stuck with me and stuck with a lot of people who attended that panel and who watched it online was, yeah, you see us when we're racing and you see us kind of in a space where we're only judged based on our ability. Yeah, you see us represented really well there, but the minute we retire, 
look at the management, look at the directors, look at the referees, look at all of that stuff. The minute any form of structural racism that's not based on ability can come into play, you don't see us there anymore. And that, like, that's to prove me, yeah, for so long. Well, the big one, isn't it? Yeah. And where are the black managers? And the music industry, you know, where are the black managers? When you're perfectly happy to have people singing or playing football, yeah, they, their career stops. Ah. Yeah. yeah. And that conversation actually led to us um, doing funders work in the community and working directly with sports organisations to train these organisations to understand that they are part of a structure that systemically disadvantages black people and global majority people, which then feeds into our health outcomes. So we're actually still doing work that came from that conversation that we had with Man Correct. We like, you know, that was it with Sue. You know, yeah, and I think when it comes to these kind of things, people aren't necessarily uh, welcoming of criticism or, you know, did they take it on board? Do you find that when you're talking to people who are higher up in those structures, that they are willing to make the changes or? The interesting thing is I do find that people who are quite often higher up don't always want to hear it and you can have some interesting conversations, but I think it's today... It's the fact, yeah. Challenging conversations. If the fact that those conversations are happening, like we, but then equally, the last one we did, there was someone who was, um, I think he was over like five or six sports centres, and he was the head of that inclusion. He was a white man, and he was like, I think he was from like Devon or somewhere really like rural, and he hadn't even thought about it, and he was really like in a space of I hadn't even thought about what people's experiences are. You've really opened up my eyes and what can we do? How can we really push him for, okay, what can I do? What can I go back and do so that I'm playing my part in this? So you might get some people who are a little bit stuck in the ways, but then you can also walk in and find someone who maybe you, were, you weren't sure what way they'd take the course or the training and they're actually ready to pick it up and run with it into everything that they can. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think you can even have a head of diversity and inclusion that is a white man. I'm not entirely sure what part of his lived experience makes him qualified to... Uh, I mean, I, I had a conversation with a friend whose son is wheelchair user and they were, they were doing taking... Um, they were a, a part of a tribunal and uh, one of the members of the panel was a wheelchair user and she said to me, and she had a conversation with yesterday, she said it really went in their favour and it struck me that I thought, how could there be a group of people making a judgement about the needs of a wheelchair user and none of them has to face the challenges that this person who uses the wheelchair faces, you know, and in, and kind of it speaks to that, doesn't it? The panels should necessarily certainly be representative of the issue that they have control or have power over, right? And yeah, yeah. I guess part of what you're trying to change. It's that whole quote, isn't it, of be very sceptical of anyone around the table discussing a minority or marginalised group when no one from that group is around the table because, and that's a message that literally has only really even started to scratch the surface since 2020 BLM because it was just yeah. perfectly acceptable until like, we were just like, no, no. And still barely, you know, I mean, we've had uh, so many conversations recently and hey, uh, here's our weekly Meghan Markle, the first drop of the week. <laughs> so many animals, and they're, oh, they're okay, they've had uh, Kalechi on recently and obviously Afua Hirsch and people have been talking about it for a while. But still, I still see news, you know, tables. But even to that point, when you have even Victoria Derbyshire, they're talking about, I don't know, electricity prices or something. I've yet to see a poor person on any of those panels. <laughs> like, can you have somebody who earns under 80 grand a year discuss um, discuss energy prices, please, and then come back to me and tell me whether that panel's representative or not. But yeah, you make it, it is a great point. that probably only did come out of the BLM movement. I think I agree. Really, yeah, well, there's all the ubiquity of it actually being uh, shown. So you did allude to your past um, in the police force. How long were you in the police force? Um, I was in there a short time. So I was in there 20 months from January 2017 to August 2018. And uh, I'm going to ask the big question, why did you join? Um, I joined because I actually really thought I could make a difference specifically to children and young people. I was keen to work with them. Um, I grew up in care. I had interactions. Um, and when you say interactions, people often assume you broke the law. But the police are responders to look after children in near enough all circumstances. So I had interactions with the police just around them being treated as a taxi service. And they were never 
pleasant. I was always, I always felt like a criminal. As many young people who interact with the police really? and they feel that you're... Then just, just being, you know, right, you know, this, this is kind of part of our job. It was... It never... Oh, no. Really? I was, and I was like having a real, um, I was really struggling at that time and I was in a really dangerous situation and I always remember I was in the back of the car with this police woman and she was taking me somewhere that I really didn't want to go. It was unsafe. There was loads of issues. And I wanted to tell her, I was like, sat, and I was literally just sat crying the whole car ride, crying my eyes out. And she was sat in the back and I was like, when she looks at me, like in my head, I was like, when she looks at me, I'm going to tell her, I'm going to tell her I can't go back to this place. And she didn't look at me once, even though I was crying the whole time. And then when we got to where we were going, she opened the door and went, go on, get out. And I was just like, oh my God. And got out and I always thought, if I ever get, and this is like, you know, me as a, I think, 16 year olds with no qualifications, who failed most of the GCSEs and have no aspirations of ever being anything other than like making it to the next day i always thought if i ever get to a position like that i'm never gonna let a young person pass me without being like are you okay what is going on with you and that was like the bit when that i really did love in the police like young like the amount of times you interact with young people who are in care i'm like i would just be even if we were taking them into custody i would be in the back of the car going through every little bit of the lab be like Listen, what do you need? How are things going on? This, you know, this isn't the end. Just because we're taking years to custody doesn't mean anything. You can turn this around, like giving them pep talks. And I used to actually get picked on for it. They called me the little social worker. Why are you bothering with them? And it was a real source of like, they got really upset with me for being like that with young people because quite often they just wrote young people off. So it was like me aim to be like that whole good guy within the force. But being in there, it's, it's you know, it's, the whole you can't just be it can't just be one person it needs to be everyone within there and and quite often it is just one person who who cares a couple of things from what you were just saying there obviously you know from where you've been but all those kids they'll remember you like you can guarantee from where you've been or every single one of those kids will remember you like that i mean you must that just in itself you know even an adult remembers what someone does a random act of kindness to them right the police officer or otherwise it's extra you know, but has an extra impact because they would not be expecting a police officer to be that kind to them. But also, it sort of ties back into you saying from your experience, you remember seeing police officers that stopped caring. And one of the things that struck you when you watched the footage of George Floyd was the people, the police officers that turned their backs. And this is obviously it's come out with the uh, uh, the most recent police officer accused of all the raid. Uh, Wade Cousins, Sarah Everard. I mean, he was literally, was he not re referred to as the rapist? And then it, you know, so that within the, the community of the police force, that element of stopping caring. And it'd be interesting to ask you, if you don't mind answering, uh, what you think causes that? Because you carried on caring, and obviously, 20 months was, you know, but we don't need to go into any reasons, but it sounds like not hard 20 months. But yeah, what, how, what do you think happens to police officers that makes them feel that way? I think it's a conscious choice to start ignoring things that everyone can see. And I think there's kind of, there's two lines of thought here for me. So there's, the, I think the reason I was different is because a lot of officers join, it's like the first job that they join, you know, they join from school or university. It's the first, like, air quotes, proper job. Or they join from what I would refer to as the police family. So as a voluntary officer or as a police community support officer. So the culture within the police is really normalised to them or they've never experienced a work culture before that shows them that this isn't this isn't appropriate. And I'm not saying that they haven't got eyes, like, because anyone with eyes can see that the culture within policing isn't appropriate. But for me, I went in, you know, 29 doesn't sound like that old, but I'd had a 12-year career working in children's safeguarding behind me. And I was working in a professional setting and I kind of, in myself as a person, I'd like gone through this process of really knowing who I was as a black person. And so there was kind of, I wasn't going to give any leeway on who I was as a black person or give up any part of my identity when joining the police and all, you know, all the adverts were like, join us, bring your whole self to the team. We want you. We don't want to change you. Lies, they do. <laughs> They're just like, stop it. Stop lying right now. <laughs> as he was saying, yeah, the way I was just like, and then you just finished it with lying and not the chef's kiss, but yeah. Yeah. So, but then when you go in there, and this is the thing, you know, I've seen chief officers, I've seen um, Mark Rowley and chief officers sit there and be like, oh, I didn't know this was happening. Every officer knows it's happening because you would have to be blind not to know that it's happening. It is 
rampant. It's everywhere. They're not trying to hide it because why would they hide it? It's so normalized in the force. So you can see the systemic misogyny. You can see the systemic racism. You can see the systemic homophobia and transphobia. The issue is if you're like me and you're the kind of person who's like, this is wrong. We shouldn't be doing this. Can I just ask why we're doing this? Can I just challenge this? I don't think we should use that language anymore. And that is the kind of person I am because I can't, to be quiet about that is to be okay with that, you know, as they say, silence is compliance. And so for me, I'd just be like, always with like my hands up. And quite quickly, I then became a target of bullying. Quite quickly, they then turned on me. And it was like, she's not going to be quiet about what we're doing. So she can't be here. And officers knew that because, so for me, I went through like horrific bullying in the first nine months and I didn't leave for another year. I went back. I was then completely ostracized, completely like shoved out. I'd be left on my own if I were, you know, if I pressed my button and was asking for backup. No one would come for ages. Officers would stand by and watch me be punched in the face. Like, but it's very much, it tells you what happens if you are the kind, you know, basically, if you want to tell tales, this is what's going to happen to you. Yeah. You would think, right. If they had any sense, even if they weren't going to change, even if they were not planning to do any, what do they call it, root and branch change or any diddy app, you could have been a poster girl, even if in the most Machiavellian sense, if they'd have just treated you right and you actually would have helped you already, they could have basically not had to do any real funding of any real change, but they could have at least sort of uh, done a surface kind of, you know, mollification exercise essentially but instead they just were completely true to form and you know were exactly what you'd expect I, I i actually can't believe that they were that extreme i would have thought that they'd i mean i don't know why but a bit clever about it maybe no as long as they're not calling you overt names like they don't have to be clever about it they can say that they couldn't get there they can it can only be justified but like it's unjustifiable and you know exactly what's happening because you can see how other officers are being treated and the response yeah. they're getting so and then for like the the year later i then started just being quieter and not really saying things about stuff and i noticed that the quieter i was about the culture the nicer people were to me the more opportunities came my way like at the point of leaving i'd reached the end so i was in my training periods i got the, to the end of my training periods i'd passed everything i was being told what station i was going to go to and um, they were keen for me to go on a pathway to, they were going to pay for me, part, most of my degree, put me on a pathway to be an inspector. All of this wonderful stuff was going to happen. And and I just remember, like, I even, I just walked in and I was like, you've proved, you've got there, you've, you know, you're going to be a police officer, they're going to pay for your degree, all that wonderful stuff. And I just looked in the mirror and I was like, but you cannot say another thing. You can't talk about racism, you can't talk about sexism, you can't talk about misogyny. You now have to be like them in order to prepare the payoff. After the payoff, and I literally just walked in and was like, "I'm leaving." <laughs> she was like, "I can't look. See you later." And they were just like, "Right, the hospital be gone." Even do you know what that's really? And I mean, and actually, it's interesting because coming back to something you said earlier about being 29 and at 22, I don't know because I do think hasn't gotten older. Definitely, I am definitely much more myself. My certainly about certain things like that. My barriers are much stronger, or my boundaries are stronger, and I certainly know with up with what I won't put, you know. And 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 that that's that's something you had to sleep with every night. Yeah. And you knew clearly that it wasn't, you know, you weren't going to be able to do that. What what was your experience of other people speaking up? Was nobody else doing it at all, or was it kind of every now and again someone would put their head above a parapet? The way it was always women and minority groups who said anything. You never see the white men saying anything because they benefit from a system that absolutely puts them at the top. So the women I knew, so I worked alongside enough, well, alongside as in I was put in the same team. I had no choice over working with them. And he was being investigated for um, pulling, he was from the traffic team, he was pulling women over, giving them tickets and then using those details to contact them. And he was being investigated for that. Um, and they were kind Andy, of... The ways in which people find to misuse power, the length will never cease to amaze me. I mean, honestly, amazing. Absolutely just hideous, just horrible, absolutely horrible. And there were some people, like women, were kind of, like, sort of 
protect each other from them, the women within the force. But because I told her about racism, I wasn't in that group. So when I was paired with them, people would actually laugh like, haha, she's going to grow up with like this person who we knows a peer. And then sergeants would like intervene and be like, no, you can't go out with her because they knew what he was being investigated for. And then some like sometimes you get helpful men who'd be like, oh, be careful of that one. He's being investigated for this. But like they're taking you to the side and I'm like, you all literally have the power to do something about this person, but you're not. You're just sort of thinking you're being nice. And then, but that was someone who they'd all agreed was like, you know, was a, a, a predator and they'd all agreed that he was kind of in the out group. But then the ones who were the friends, I worked in another team. And this is where the dynamics within the police force and that gender hierarchy comes in, where there was an officer who'd been um, mis had loads of misconduct processes for sexual misconduct and he had one ongoing where he'd been on night patrol in town and one of the one of his colleagues had come up to the van to talk to them and he put his hands up a skirt and she'd filed a complaint he was off suspended while he was being investigated and i was working with his team and they were like oh this is just political correctness gone mad you know he doesn't mean anything by it and i'm like and she was the world's worst, you know, what's she doing going to them? Like, she was completely out for daring to speak up about oh. it. And the interesting thing was, while I worked there, he lost his job. The misconduct procedure was actually, you know, a successful one. But their position didn't change. They were still very much in this corner and this, you know, war on woke within the police and this feminism gone mad. And I'm a bit like, your bloody colleague's been an absolute pig and you still won't condemn him. I mean, it wasn't even something borderline. It wasn't even like mis misconstrued flirting, you know, which even, you know, as a colleague, don't do it. But okay, people do those things. They just get, you know, and they said, you know, I'm not defending it, but you cannot. It's completely indefensible what he did in front of other people. It was, it sounds like it wasn't even, you know, that it was a he said, she said situation, which doesn't make it better. It just means that it would have been harder to prove, right? But it was completely, wow, that's okay. So yeah, that's not. So actually that brings us around then, I guess, to the, the police officers in uh, the US. Uh, I've got, I can't remember which state is what they're in. Uh, it was Tyrone Nichols is the kid, wasn't he? The Memphis. Memphis, yeah. Yeah. And the five officers, they were, they're all back and um, they were all straight away charged. Um, and I imagine we'll all be evicted. Um, but um, yeah. Well, what do you think about that dynamic in terms of... Because, I mean, it's a majority black state. The majority of its police officers are black. Mm. And uh, the majority of leadership is black, so politically. So, for me, I'm, my first thoughts were, well, I think the culture rather than the officers, you know, the, the culture within the police force, um, rather than the fact that the, rather the officer's race, maybe. I don't know. I mean, you, you would have the experience of this. What do you think? So, yeah, I think it's, um, again, you've got to think about the culture. You've got to think about the institutional nature where, you know, the pillars of policing are arguably racism, sexism, misogyny, homophobia. That's just the pillars of police culture. I want that on a T-shirt, but I think it's probably won't be very good for driving around. <laughs> yeah, if you get pulled over, they might not like so they're the pillars of policing and as I've said, regardless of who you are when you go in, you either have to assimilate or fight against it. Fight against it, you're going to have a really hard time. Just as you have women officers, you know, when I was um, in the police force, we had training saying the sexual, and this is five, six years ago, sexual misconduct was the biggest threat to the force. So they know, they've known that this was coming, but they actually identified the female officers had a role to play because they would often be groomed by male officers. And then we'll protect male officers when complaints came in so they would be manipulated. And, you know, so women can be part of misogyny too, just as well oh, can be part of racist structures too. Precisely. And I mean, it, and it, women are often misogynistic and uphold misogynistic values. I mean, you know, there's definitely, they're, they're, and also in the, in the same way with the racism, it's not like black people can't be racist. I mean, you know, Tory parties. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and is is massive evidence that the Tory party. I didn't think they'd actually won anyone who hadn't internalised racism within the Tory party because you know what you saw, you too. No, precisely. You couldn't be there if you didn't have internalised racism. You literally could not be there saying the policies if you hadn't internalised racism completely. Uh, you know, I don't even think that. Yeah, I'm, you don't need to list 
names, but just because Abba's not here, I'll mention the love of her life, Quasi Quarting. Okay. <laughs> we also like to mention Kemi. I like to mention Kemi. Yeah. Horrible mention. But actually, um, funnily enough, it makes me think when we're talking about this, of um, Swella Braverman and her wonderful Rwanda plan, but was in um, the missing children that we that we've got and actually so in brighton since july 2021 137 were reported missing that's locally here um i think one of which was a girl and like two of which were under 13 like check my numbers on that but i think 60 were found and 76 were under investigation i wondered every actually just the curtain obviously with your experience in the police force and um with the social work system how are those kids looked after? Because I was you know, just thinking about it this morning. I was thinking, so you drive, drive them to a hotel, you put them in their rooms. It's not a care home. So there aren't sort of systems in place to monitor the children. How many adults per children? You know, what what's going on now? How, how are they looked after? I don't know anything about the process for the um, children who are part who are under immigration and never came across children under immigration. I think in Merseyside it's in Southport and I didn't work in Southport that often. But um I had no idea how children are just kind of not being monitored in a hotel or not being identified as probably one of the highest risk groups because the un- many of them were unaccompanied children. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, that's why I think that's why they're, they're there in their groups. They were in groups of unaccompanied yeah. um, children. So you'd think that then not, you think one of them goes missing on a day and it's alarm stations, you know, posters. They, and it just, it's all just kind of happened. There's been a, and obviously there's a government silence on it, which is um, mm. not surprising at all. Um, and actually, on the refugees thing, I have to bring it up because I have a little, a little concern. Have you seen the stories about the Ukrainian refugees? Um, the Channel Four piece where the um, the homes for Ukrainian refugees system had fallen through in Birmingham because they were under, yeah they were being housed in Muslim near Muslim people. Um, yeah, didn't realise how diverse the UK was. I love the white woman though. That was like they had to go. <laughs> she is my new favorite person. If you want to come and talk on the show, we would love to have. She was casual. She just said, "Look, a lot of my neighbors are Muslims. You know, we've got um, uh, Kashmiri people, we've got Pakistani people, we've got Bengali people. You know." She just said, um, "I wasn't wasn't prepared." And she said, "You know, the woman had come home and her child was at school, which is a but only black and Asian school." And the woman said, "The child's not safe there." You know. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I really, I really respected that white woman. <laughs> yeah, what I I felt so sorry for the woman interviewing them because she was the woman of color. But what I found was astounding was literally they were being interviewed by a woman of color going, "Yeah, there's just so many of you." Who... <laughs> Absolutely no hold barred. I mean, yeah. that woman that was that she was talking to um, in the end, and then found out that they were fish. Yeah. <laughs> So shocked, and that poor woman. There was a black woman who was going in, like basically the black woman. She said, "Tabis doing inclusion training." And like, I put then I was kind of like so many levels. Like, how did Britain not see this coming when they were literally pushing black people back off the trains when they were leaving, and they didn't give a damn about the black people getting over to get out the country? Then the black people literally nearly freezing to death at the borders. We knew that the racist hierarchy was still being upheld while they were fleeing Ukraine. And the how soldiers they were... openly had stormfront tattoos yeah. on their arm, you know. And uh, and the other thing is the way they were treated when they came into the country, they were treated differently to uh, other refugees. Mm-hmm. So that could only have spoken to, uh, you know, uh, that feeling that that racial hierarchy was being upheld and deservedly so. so. Oh, it's real, isn't it? You know, on the one hand, we're being told, kick refugees back in dinghies in the war, and if you help them, it's illegal if they're brown. But if it's a white refugee from Ukraine, then we will be to give them a house and we will do everything we can to support them. Let's have that energy for every refugee. You know what I mean? It's ridiculous. But I just think, how did you not see it coming? But also, it speaks to the 
representation in the media of people from Britain if people who are outside of this country have no idea that we make up like 20% of the population here? Um, actually, we live in a Richard Curtis film and there's only one or two of us, uh, I don't know, thousand, whatever, you know. is Yeah, no, it, it, that is actually why the representation part is quite something. And actually, I wonder why that is because they must see, say, for example, our football team. And I know we know that football teams aren't necessarily representative, but, you know, our football team is a solid... And someone, I'm sure, who knows more about football will correct me. But also, not just that, we have a team that takes the knee. Oh, yeah. But, you know, which is obviously respect to Southgate for that. But also respect to the boys for explaining it. And apparently, that's what happened. He uh, he said to them, let you tell your teammates about your experiences. And the team can choose. And the team listened. And that's what they chose. And I think that was, you know, in that line of work in terms of actually the lived people sharing their lived experience and that is what what people res- respond to i mean obviously like you said earlier there are people who just put the walls up you just yeah they want to they care they believe you whatever but you know if, if you are open then you can actually make make a bit of change um but yeah it was i don't i don't know i would have thought i mean my cousin had a an issue he said he's a six foot four black guy walking through a park in london and uh some I think they were Polish guys were shouting the, the N-word. <laughs> and then the police, and this is a rare story, you would hear me tell where the police got it right. And the police came along and were like, guys, he is English. <laughs> You're being racist to him in his own country. You know, um, but that's what it kind of feels like. You kind of feel a little bit like, oh my God. Because ironically, if they stay here and have kids, their kids aren't going to get racially abused. They're not going to get racially abused walking down the street. You know, any Ukrainian refugee or any white refugee. But they've got the, um, the breath to... Yeah. yeah. The bit that I found interesting was they were like, you know, this racism isn't assimilating to British culture. And I was like, <laughs> really? <laughs> like, it's pretty entrenched in British culture, if you ask me. And actually, it's funny, isn't it, when we were talking about how the representation, I think even, I mean, I had a little moment in a work group chat when they were doing a fundraiser for Ukraine, and I said, that's a great idea. Um, maybe we could do one next to Palestine, Yemen, and um, Sudan, and uh, there was tumbleweed. Well, no, Aisha, let's talk about how quickly black people were shut down. Talk about racism all you like. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, let's talk about uh, the hierarchy of racism or refugees or issues around the world yeah and i just felt like the amount of times i went into spaces and was like we need to speak about the racism that is clearly happening with the ukraine crisis and was kind of shut down by oh no we need to help ukraine i'm like no we can we can talk about how bad the war is and also talk about how bad the racism is because what you're doing is you're doing what always happens with racism you're saying it's not the time black people you need to sit there and wait till we've got the time to talk about racism and black people being treated with racism during a war is not the time to talk about racism. Yeah, no, but you make a good point. And actually, it reminds me of that song of the line in Mississippi, gone down. You know, as she says, they keep on saying, go slow. Um, and then that's it. We're still literally sitting there listening to people saying, oh, well, now's not the time when, you know, I can still walk up right at home and I can see Ukrainian flags on people's cars they've got hanging out there you can go to little villages in the middle of west sussex at the middle little duck pond with the war set you know little war memorial and have a ukrainian flag on it i have yet to see a yemen flag i have yet to see a sudanese flag i have yet to see you know uh certainly not palestinian flag but um yeah these these no one's to hear about them but yeah i mean it's it's interesting, I and mean, during the whole time, I suppose, we were listening to news reporters say it's different. Did that have blonde hair and blue eyes? Like, literally, one news reporter said, these people have blonde hair and blue eyes, and I was like, oh, my God, you're literally drawing us to them slide off. You're just showing people. You shouldn't care because they're having a horrible time and they're going through hell. You should care because they look like you. Yeah. Like, the language was shocking. Yeah, people were so desperate to help that if you mentioned the racism, it was literally, I got told, 
no we need to not be divisive you know this is a this is a class issue and i was like definitely not a class issue definitely it feels very much like a race issue when someone says blonde hair blue eyes i don't want to sound oversensitive but because there was that newsreader that said um you know they haven't used this since the iraq war but that was different I'm not entirely sure why, because I think there are some Iraqi blonde hair and blue eyes, so, you know, they should have gone and fished them out. I mean, really. But yeah, there was, there was that whole, whole, whole element. Um, but I wanted to, just to, as we tie up, talk about, well, let's say something fun. It isn't really fun to talk about Spare and Harry and Meghan every week. I literally cried when I watched the Netflix documentary because I just feel like never get to see anything that's about the royal where they're actually talking about stuff that I think about and affects my life, you know, and that that was a, a really big deal to me. But you were saying you've read Spare, so let's, let's yeah, tell me what you think. I, well, read in the loosest term that I listened to an Audible, but it was nice because like, Harry narrated it. Um, I, do you know what? I just feel like they've been misrepresented so much in the media, like there's, and even the, you know, the snippets that came out of the book sounded like Harry was just blatant his family. He actually wasn't. He was being really loving towards his family, really respectful, but but actually, you know, identifying the boundaries in the relationship, the fact that William is clearly fiercely competitive and jealous of his brother, the fact that Charles didn't seem to love or care about someone as like this cold parent and... And just how, you know, we saw, obviously, I was young when Princess Diana died, but just how it hit him being made to walk behind his mother's coffin in front of thousands, if not millions of people, and the lack of love and empathy within that family. He just came across as someone who has just been treated in this really cold way since he was a child, literally been told, you're just there in case anything happens to your brother. I'm like, <laughs> like... Aside from that, do whatever you want. Just don't get too off your face and make a show of us. And then when he finally finds someone who he, like, loves and he finally gets something in his life, just because she doesn't fit the aesthetic of the royal family, which, again, let's be clear, is probably blonde hair, blue eyes and white, they've absolutely gone at him. And and the fact that he's been treated arguably in a worse way than Prince Andrew just speaks volumes about what this country considers an important and serious issue like dating a mixed race black woman is a more serious issue than arguably and allegedly having sex with an underage i don't know do we still have to say allegedly i don't know he paid it off i don't know know where that leaves you i know because i mean but paying off is definitely not an admission is it because that's usually the terms of it isn't it yeah so it would be wise to say allegedly. If any legal advisors out there would like to um, let us know, then uh, we will willingly take your advice. Um, but yeah, I think that, that you make a really good point. The fact that, I mean, everything that's going on and the Queen is nowhere to be seen with Harry and Meghan, but she is out and about in public with Prince Andrew. That's where her support was. And and I mean, I'm sure it was very much, I could, you could imagine it. Well, she was, what was she, 15? You know, that was, I'm assuming that's how it was all played, played off internally. But um, I think it's interesting though as well, I've never really thought about William because they've done so much to protect him mm. in terms of, you know, I mean, you just don't hear anything about him now. Yeah. Does he have a personality? That is a few things. Basically. <laughs> what does he say apart from like, from his sedan chair being carried by black children or, you know, apart from when he's, touching black hands through chicken wire you know but he doesn't ever say anything and that makes me wonder whether it's because he doesn't have anything interesting to say or whether he does say things he says things he says bad things i mean apparently the temper thing was well known and i think it has to be vile temper jenny bond was the royal correspondent she said he is known for having a really short temper which i was unaware of i can see it in that time though I think William and Kate just come across as absolutely like Magnolia, the most boring people on earth. I would never go for a drink with them, but I would go drink for a drink with Harry and Meghan. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. You know, Harry and Meghan, party. Yeah, they a laugh. Yeah, <laughs> never they party. You know they've got money. They would have the best guest to their party. 
I was so in the inside of Perry would be up there, no, but Serena, Beyonce, I want to go to their parties. As we always say on the show, one yes, please. If you ever want to come talk to us, guys, and we'll always have you on the show. Um, but one bit did make me laugh, though. I know you haven't read, read the book, so I don't want to massively spoil it for you, though. Is he's just such a child of privilege. Like, I know he's had a bad time, but then he's like, um, we were homeless, we had nowhere to go. And Tyler Perry reached out and offered us this mansion and security. I mean, prior to like, and I'm like, listen, there's refugees in thingies. That's not fleeing, babe. You got a private jet to an option. It's not the same. It's just coming to girls. Yes. Push, their, push their family friends across the channel and yes. swam the whole way. Right? And you guys fled in your private jet. If you see the Netflix series, now I've watched it. I don't want to spoil it, people. Obviously, you know about this bit. There's video footage, like their video diary of them on the plane. Like, that's with Biden. They're finally, it's just finally free. And they're talking about how they're like. And the thing is, it is, it's so difficult to, to feel real empathy because it feels like diamond shoes are pitching when you see the, you know, at Tyler Perry's. But when they're at her house, or when they're at their house in Canada, and they are, there are, um, uh, Pat Parati, Parati is on like boats. You know, Pat Parati is like at the end of her drive. They're just everywhere, and you, you, I get that it must. The mental effects must be awful. But at the same time, like you said, yeah, it's not really the same if you're being on a private. <laughs> if you're being on a private jet, it's kind of Aries Mash. It's just like, look, you could just have this whole house. I don't even. Was he even there? No, he was off in another house. He was like, stay as long as you like. And he was like, that gave us some breathing space. I was like, for God's sake. <laughs> but then the other bit that he points out at the end, which I thought, you know, we all roll our eyes and we like, he's this child of privilege. He's got no idea. But he said this bit at the end that I thought was really, really fair. He was like, I've been raised from a child to be a royal. They've never taught me to be anything else. I've been put in the media. That wasn't by choice. Yeah. I've been made. So all I can do is royal duties. And then one day they just cut me off and were like, find a new way to do something else. But you made, you essentially made me famous. I had no, you know, famous yeah. people have a choice. They choose to be celebrities. He didn't have a choice. He wasn't sort of, he sort of wasn't raised to be anything other than what he is. And then when he did, like, he wanted a little bit of privacy, he wanted to do things a little bit different, they completely cut him off and said you're on your own and the security bit really did get to me because he was you know he's he was a security risk he was on the top of many terrorists and so but that wasn't his fault that's because who he was as a royal so to to rub salt in the wounds and go and we're not going to protect you or your family when he knows the death threats come through i thought that was that was she as well for megan where she's had a lot of death threats because of the amount of vitriol that she gets from the british press and really the rest of the world doesn't hate her really strange isn't it yeah the rest of the world's like, yeah, she's great. We love her. And it's only the British press that have this level of, you know, I mean, it's, it's vile, isn't it? We what Clarkson said, I mean, what Piers Morgan has been saying for years and years and years, but it is only the British press that has that. So, I mean, I hope for them that they make, you know, make it all happy and happy with the over there. And just out of curiosity, just to prove a point, but my co-host Elaine, I have to ask this question. We did do a poll. I won't redo the poll on our Twitter feed. If you had to get rid of one, and actually we should maybe ask all our guests this, because it'd be a way of just finding out which ones are okay people and which ones aren't. Um, this is really only for Elaine when she watches it. Uh, if you had to get rid of one, who would you get rid of? Um, Whitney, Mariah, Beyonce, or Mary J. Blige? Oh, now that's a really hard question. Uh, this is why people come on the show. We cover the tough issues and we cover them hard. So yeah, I'm ready to go. Whitney, Beyonce, Mariah, Mary J. Blige. I love them all. They were all brilliant. I would say on the basis that, and this might just be TikTok being mean, I don't think she has the voice that she once had. And like she was great back in the day. I was have to get rid of Mariah because I just don't think she can hold the notes anymore, but she might. So I don't like feel bad, but I know, I know Mary J. Mentally, she can't hold the notes anymore. Like, God, not going to do but Mariah, if you want to come on the show, <laughs> you're just wrong, Mariah. I will be back in your camp all day long. But yeah, it'd have to be Mariah because, and also, 
she's you know she's minted off all that christmas stuff she's fine she could get cancelled and she'd still be a billionaire because she yeah. missed christmas yeah. yeah no it's true well i'm fine with any arts except for well whitney will be able to say probably uh but elaine said whitney and i don't think i can ever forgive her so if you feel like watching last week's episode you will see that i punished her harshly Glad to hear Whitney. Well, it is bad. He was. No, you know, Whitney's like. No. Oh, childhood. Yeah, I don't even think Beyonce is the level that Whitney is. Whitney was something else. Absolutely. The thing that I needed, I tried to get across, was that there, there was no Beyonce. There is no Mariah. There is, I mean, Mary Jane. She, she, she's younger than. But there's none of them without Whitney. Whitney had to be for them to. That was there's just the whole path. She was the. So there's. It's an irrelevant conversation. I don't, she shouldn't even be there because you can't compare. She's not on a level. She's, yeah, she's elsewhere. But um, that's great. I'm really glad that you gave the correct answer to that because I'm really getting on with you because we're going to have to boot our only guest out and just be like me at the end. Really but that is the correct answer, basically, anyone but Whitney. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I have to have a big beehive person, but I'm not one of those, you know, at the end of the day, she's still sort of a billionaire, but I'm not. One of those, but yeah, I have basically like no criticism of Beyonce, Chef, really. Yeah, but Beyonce yeah. is brilliant. He is, but they're all brilliant. That's the thing I love. I absolutely love Mary J. Blige. I love her music. I love the fact that she's still absolutely giving performances. You know, it's not a, it's not that I don't like. It's just in terms of talent and what they've given to the world musically and things. I just can't yeah. like that one the right answer. But if Elaine's reason was, and it was actually not a bad reason, she said that. Uh, she listens to her the least if she's just like cleaning the house or in her car and stuff like that, which I kind of get because there aren't so many like Whitney bops, you know what I mean? Like, whereas there are a fair few Mary J bops at all, right? Whitney's more of mood, isn't she? He has to be in a Whitney mood to listen That's to Whitney. Exactly right. She is literally, but you know, when you just sometimes just feel better on and you're just like, exactly what I needed. Yeah. <laughs> but she is a whole mood, which essentially is one. Sounds just for you, Elaine. Uh, thank you so much, Chantal. You've been like a super guest. I really appreciate you talking about your time in the police force. Um, and really, really, really thank you for your work on the BLM stuff. I will, if you want, if you've got a link to a website or anything, we can post that for you. Um, I would love to have you back. You know, I would love to have you back on the show if you could ever spare the time. Amazing. Thanks so much for having me on. And I'd love to be back and I'll send you something, hopefully, in a link. Oh. <laughs> well, anyway, if you guys enjoyed this show, please don't forget to like it and subscribe, 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 subscribe. And then we can keep making content. Anyway, thanks, guys. Have a great week. Bye. Bye.